This is an ICO Alert podcast. Value, happiness, peace. What does one of the world's oldest, most enduring philosophies have to tell us about blockchain? I'm Peter Kay, and this is Wittgenstein's Table. I'm the Director of Globalization at ICO Alert. The views expressed on this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and not the views of ICO Alert or any other entity. Remember that none of this is specific financial advice. Don't base your decisions on it. This podcast is only for information and entertainment purposes, and I hope it helps you learn and enjoy life. I have with me my colleague from ICO Alert, Ryan Dennis, head of content here. We talk about Buddhist philosophy and what it means for the world we want to build and who we want to be. In episode one, we talked about Wittgenstein, an Austrian-British philosopher. In episode two, we talked a lot about Churchill and Stalin. But if we're going to consider 2,500 years or more of the wisest human thought, we can't just keep ourselves to the West. Here with me today is Ryan Dennis, our head of content and what Ryan brand sentinel, something like that. And he is a practicer of Buddhist philosophy. And his philosophy, I think, is something you'll find that no matter what your religion or worldview, it's something that you'll find helpful or at least interesting. So, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And tell me a little bit about how you came to practice Buddhist philosophy. So I was actually born into a family of Buddhist practitioners. My parents were both born and raised Baptist in um, Detroit, my father, and my mother raised in D.C., obviously in the 50s, 60s. Great time for people of color in the United States in those cities. So my father was kind of always pegged with this internal rage, this like feeling of he never felt like he belonged. He always felt like he was looked down upon and mistreated and he never got his answers. So my father was six feet tall, extremely handsome. Uh, My voice is a shadow of his voice. When they couldn't get James Earl Jones, they would get my father to do voice acting. Um, In the 70s, obviously it was a time of a lot of uh, experimentation of thought as well as for some people drug use and you know, it was a lot of political change. And he came across the practice of chanting Nam-myoho Renge-kyo which translates loosely to devoting myself to the law of cause and effect through sound. So the idea behind this practice was that he had to take responsibility for himself and his life by following the law of cause and effect and devoting himself to it, right? So this rage that he felt, this pain, this internal anger that he had, he said, I'm going to be accountable for it. And I have to do something about it. I can't just blame everybody else. And then he introduced my mother to the practice as well. So I've, I've been practicing for probably 20 years, but it's more of a philosophy than a religion. There are no rules. Um, there are no, nothing I have to wear. There's no specific holidays. There's, it's, a, it's really a Buddhism for modern life. We believe that every individual has the ability to become happy. And we practice Buddhist philosophy to deepen our faith and understanding of how we can allow others to reach their unlimited potential. So explaining 
Buddhism or the history of Buddhism in five minutes is like saying I'm going to explain everything about wine in five minutes. It's literally impossible. Uh, so, but what I will say is that when Buddhism was really gaining a lot of popularity in Eastern Asia, and, and basically the government was at a loss because there were these people who were practicing Buddhism and they were standing up for themselves and feeling value in themselves. And that's not good for, you know, uh, the, the rich families because then they can't control everybody. So what they did was they issued a military form of Buddhism called Shinto Buddhism, which required you to, you know, like a soldier, stay in place for four or five hours in one position to show your true dedication to the universe. And that was how you tapped in and, med and meditated. It sounds like if Buddhism is the original Bitcoin, then Shinto is the original like Fed coin. <laughs> you know, like it's a revolution, they see the danger, and then they try to co-opt the revolution, co-opt the new philosophy to their own ends. That's right. I would say absolutely. And that has happened with almost every form of religion, right? It's bastardized or used for political power gain or mm -hmm. financial gain, whatever. So there was actually a Buddhist teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, and um, some people call him Siddhartha Gautama. And the truth of the matter is, is he knew that there was something wrong with this Shinto Buddhism and the other forms of Buddhism people were practicing because everybody was miserable. Just like kind of today's society, walking mm -hmm. around, everybody seems a little bit melancholy and miserable. Why? You know, if, if Buddhism is so great, why, why is everybody around me so sad? Why is everybody poor? Why does nobody have anything of value? And they feel dejected and defeated. So he actually began studying all of the sutras of Buddha and found his final and perhaps most significant, you know, champion of all of his sutras, the Lotus Sutra, which is based on the Lotus Flower. The Lotus Flower is the only flower that seeds and blossoms simultaneously in the world. And the lotus flower, the most beautiful of them, grow in the deepest, darkest, dampest swamps and emerge like gorgeous unicorns, a needle in a haystack. So what is it about these flowers? Well, the Lotus Sutra is actually Buddha saying that anybody can become happy as soon as they want to be and they choose to be. The true nature of it is everybody can reach their unlimited potential. And his goal in the Lotus Sutra was to was, was his yearning and his, and his trying to figure out how he can help everybody do this as soon and quickly as possible. Everyone can be a part of this. What I'm teaching is not exclusivist. It's not just for the elite. It's not just for the rich. It's for everybody, right? Absolutely. Ryan, you work in cryptocurrency here at ICO Alert. What does your philosophy mean practically for you as you look at the world of blockchain, as you look at the future of blockchain, as you look at the potential of projects, as you get excited about projects or, you know, less excited about other projects? How does your philosophy color your viewpoint there. The unique thing about blockchain is people who are really excited about it or may have gotten into it, if you listen to their stories of why they're excited about the industry, it may be the first ever business industry ever where people lead with, I think it's going to lead to a better world. Hmm. I think it's going to, it's a revolution. They throw these words around that are very powerful and deep and utopian almost, right? right? That we're going to work together to upend this oppressive financial system. Well, with a goal as hefty as that, clearly there's people here who have an aim or a thought of social good or collective growth. When you're talking about doing work for a living, 40 hours a week, 
and dedicating your life towards building something great, it should be something that creates value for you too, right? Makes you happy, makes you feel purpose. The three things that you would want out of, everybody needs out of a job or wants out of a job are beauty, benefit, and good. And blockchain, you know, if you work in the industry, it portends to have beauty, benefit, and good if you're using it for everyone, in a, almost in a Buddhist sense. Because the beauty is you're, you, you look great, you got everything you need, you, you have a house, you, you know, you, you're well-groomed, you're, you're part of society, you're part of, you know, something that makes you feel good. The benefit is that the actual salary, the money that you can make from it, whether it's the dual incentive of money for the people who are building a blockchain system or mining, as well as the people who are, you know, being paid to work hard and get the word out there and communicate things. And then there's the good, which is this is actually a system that will just inherently improve everybody's lives. So in the corporate world, we don't see that beauty, benefit, and good. We all feel taken advantage of when we're wearing a headset and making 100 calls for 12 hours a day, getting paid you know, pennies. But when you work in this industry, there's the opportunity for you to reach financial freedom while helping other people do the same. So if you're building these systems, the question becomes, if you're building the opportunity for other people to have that beauty, benefit, and good, what responsibility am I taking? What accountability do, do I have about the causes I'm making for the effects that this network, this chain, will have on everybody attached? And now we have this opportunity to align incentives so that when the individual is working for beauty and good and, and benefit, it's making society, it's making the whole more beautiful, more beneficial, more good. Let's take away the politics, right? Let's take away the labels. If you are a human being, your only function is to convert, you know, oxygen into carbon dioxide. You're not really doing anything else. If you're a human being, you can't help but be somebody who is performing social good to the rest of the world by breathing air and existing. And so the functionality of ourselves, our, the light inside of us themselves, is helping the earth whether you like it or not. Even if you drop dead today, you'd create tons of nutrients for worms and birds and other plant life to grow. So you, there's an inherent good in what you're doing anyway. So taking away the labels again, the reason that Buddhism still exists, it, from my perspective, as a world religion or thought process, Throughout the the many wars that have been fought to kind of evangelize religions or you know major powers all over the world, it's funny that it still exists because the Buddhist thought it it wraps and weaves through everything in and out of everything. There are beliefs in many schools of thought about communism or or socialism or is am I doing something that's good for me? Is it good for everybody? The truth of the matter is, is if you are happy and you are peaceful, you are productive and you can do things. If you are actually performing actions that make you happy, you are continually able to become a better person. Your earning potential is always high because you can always perform more good. So your potential is always there. When you're unhappy and you are low energy and you're unable to perform as many actions, your potential is lower. You can't do as much. You're, if you're dejected, how many things are you going to champion? How many people are you going to save? So inherently, you being happy is better for the world. So, right, when you smile down the street, I bet you $5, if you walk down the street and you smile, you just have a big, stupid, huge smile on your face, you will get eight out of 10 people who pass you to just giggle and just, they'll be filled with goosebumps and just smile back at you. And that's because happiness is a good. 
So when we talk about being happy, the truth of the matter is, is you can only be happy for other people if you're happy for yourself first. So taking care of yourself, self-care is important. It's pretty obvious. I'm not a self-help guru or anything like that, but you cannot help anybody or yourself if you are not taking care of yourself. So the blockchain functions in the same way, and hopefully, right? The, the best blockchain, I guess, is you being a node and just existing is good. If you're doing more good, that's great. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm a fan, and many people are fans, of decentralized blockchains. And it sounds like a repetitive, redundant tautology there, but uh, a decentralized blockchain really depends on the health of the nodes. And if people are up, if people are excited, if people are using it, if the nodes are participating, the network is, you know, like the rising tide brings up all ships, the, the network is helped out. Centralized blockchains, it kind of doesn't depend on the health of the network. There's somebody holding it up. You know, like there's a centralized entity that if they fail, the whole thing could go down and they're artificially holding the water up like a dam that might burst, mm -hmm. you know? And so if that dam bursts, all the ships go down. Uh, that's how our, you know, these products, these companies have run for millennia. I mean, like, like, like I run down to, we run down to Staples and we buy paper at Staples. All right. There's a traditional business, right? In Staples. It's, it's not like we bring our energy and our, our, our happiness and our health to Staples and, and lift Staples stock, you know, and where we benefit from that. No, we're just consuming the product. If Staples goes, Staples goes down tomorrow, it'd just be another news piece. It'd be like Toys R Us, you know, going down, right? And the Staples economy would fall completely apart and we'd go somewhere else and we'd, we'd do something else. You know, like we have no interest in Staples and our own individual health and happiness, they don't make up the old companies. The old companies like prop up their products. They prop up their ecosystems. And a lot of times they prop up their employee morale artificially. Whereas with blockchain companies, we're trying to create something where the happiness, the general productivity, the health of the nodes in the network is the health of the whole. Almost safeguarding the welfare of, of the whole instead of propping it up like a, a traditional corporation does by linking it to the health of the individual. So in that kind of sense, do you think that blockchain is almost a technological incarnation of this philosophy you're talking about, where the individual works for the good of society? When the individual is happy, society is happier. When the individual is down, society is pulled a little bit down. I believe that you could maybe that's that's where this is going, Pete. Where blockchain is the incarnation of Buddhism. <laughs> on technology. I'm I'm, I'm going to title the episode that blockchain <laughs> is the blockchain is Buddha incarnate. Block, or <laughs> blockchain has attained nirvana or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's either way. It's going to feel good because um, now now we're getting into collective joy and fluffy words like world peace and um, in in Buddhism it's called kosen rufu where everybody practices. A, their own personal form of Buddhism where they all try to be, or we're all becoming happy, right? Staples doesn't care if you're happy. They don't care if you're happy and you don't care if Staples is happy. But if you're on a blockchain, I care. If I'm on the, say I'm on a Bitcoin blockchain, I care if Bitcoin, Bitcoin's blockchain is faring well because that means I'm faring well. And there's that mutuality there, right? There's that, in, it, there's that dual incentivization that is inherent with 
kind of the way of the law of cause and effect purports itself to be. So I believe that also with a well-functioning blockchain, you want it to allow you to be free and allow you to make whatever choices you want, and that requires peace. So that's where peace comes into Buddhism, where you cannot create or do anything productive if you don't have peace. Nothing is more precious than peace. Because peace is what allows us to do work, to be happy, to live our lives. Nothing brings more happiness than peace. Peace is the most basic starting point for the advancement of humankind. When you go to work, you want a quiet place to work. You want to be able to function. When you're with your family, you don't want somebody pointing a gun at you while you play video games with your son, right? I mean, that's, or, or punching you in the face while you're going grocery shopping, right? Your internal strife about what is happening around you affects your life as much as the largest decisions you make in life. They are the cause that you make each moment in your life. For example, if the amount of collective fear and superiority the United States ultimately houses is a reflection of you internally, then that shows that our collective as a United States people is really, we're not basing our country on collective joy. You can see it. The United States has just this image of superiority and fear right? Based on our strict laws, the amount of people we imprison, the amount of warfare that we wage, and our power. We feel superior, but we're also scared. That, that is very easy to see, regardless of your political standpoint. But the truth of the matter is, is our lack of peace has impeded our progress, which is why we fall behind in the fields of education, of entrepreneurship, and even capital growth, where we're becoming fearful of countries like China and Russia kind of taking charge as a, as a powerhouse in other, in other realms of our society. So whether you get political or you get personal, you'll find that peace is important to doing work. And a blockchain functions because it functions peacefully and everybody is doing what they need to do to become happy. When everybody is selfishly grabbing what they need, like staples, and they don't care about your happiness, they will happily step on you. And that's where corporations are missing out on the benefits of cryptocurrencies and, and the like. Do you think that these societies that are, let's say, let's say a warmongering society, and I'm not making any political comment on that, whether to you that's the Mongols or America or Russia or whatever. I'm, yeah. I'm not commenting on that. A warmongering society is, it is kind of elevating its individual interests or at least its perceived individual interests over value for everybody, right? And, uh, and maybe same with corporation that steps on people, right? It, this is somebody that isn't into your theory of value creation for society. In fact, they're trying to just suppress the value of other people and crush their value potential. Okay, they ignore the value of peace in order to climb the ladder. We are a bunch of animals floating around on a drop of water. It's called Earth. Right. Right. And so let's take this analogy of we got seven billion people, let's boil them down to seven people. All right. Okay, so there's seven people in this room right here. <laughs> yes, and okay. we're just floating around in space, kind of like an elevator stuck in a building. Okay. Okay? So if you're on an elevator and you're stuck there and you know that everybody in this room has tools, they have thoughts, they have potential, you don't know how much, but you're, you're looking at everybody in this room and there's a limited amount of resources. Is your goal 
to get out of the elevator and 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 make everybody happy and and move on with your life or is your goal to look like the most important person in the elevator <laughs> that is the real question of what we are doing in our society when you have everybody in that elevator all seven people engaged in getting the heck out of here working together or rationing things using what they have to make everybody better you have more you have more when one of those people is silent dejected holding their weapons and when you get close to them or try to engage with them they point a gun at your head you have less you collectively have less and the game plan is different now you're focused on your corner of the elevator and what you can do with this corner and your process on how you're going to get out of here or move on with your life has been impeded so much you can't even see outside of the elevator anymore you can't even look inside and say is am i going to be happy in here what's going on all you do is you begin to feel either superior or fear with that person and that's what victory or defeat really is in everyday life am i going to raise my life condition and raise my ability to create dialogue with people and communication to bridge gaps to create progress on an individual scale or am i going to choose to stay in my corner hold on to my supplies not share with anybody until we all die it's very simple and it's where we are in life from my perspective i was reading an article the other day that it's about someone talking about biohacking is what kind of supplements he's taking, what he's doing with his sleep schedule, things like that, what he believes science says is good for your health. And then he goes into this diatribe about how he'll never have a family, that's a distraction from his, his end goals. He doesn't have the time to help anyone else. He can't help anybody else at all. Like he'll never help them because that's wasting his time. And I was starting to think, man, this guy is a jerk. And it proceeded on like that, and it moved into the next section where it turns out he's a part of the immortality cult in Silicon Valley. You know, they're trying to immortalize themselves with technology, maybe replace a neuron with a digital neuron over time and keep doing that until there's, their brain is just digital neurons and then upload their brain out of, you know, upload their mind out of their brain into a computer guarded by guns, all that stuff. At one point, you know, he, he was basically trying to become a god. But earlier on... He had said he had no time to help society or help individuals, help others. He had to just work for himself in order to attain this goal, which has a kind of twisted logic to it. But you realize if you make it to your end goal, you rode the coattails of society the whole way. Like nobody can be an island. Nobody can actually function on their own, no matter how much they think they are. And he doesn't acknowledge that if he makes it to his end goal, he owes it all to the society that was supporting him the whole way. Mm -hmm. To me, that guy is trying to improve himself and trying to improve himself in ways that are a little bit weird to most people. And, and that's fine. It's what makes it an interesting story. Everybody is free to do whatever they want. Maybe it makes him happy. Yet the problem with arrogance is it makes you feel smaller. It makes you internally feel less significant when you try to stand up and be more significant. So the internal strife there is actually what's the problem. So 
I believe that your environment is a mirror of what's going on inside of yourself. If you feel like your environment is puny, everybody around you is useless, and they're, these are insignificant weaklings, that's actually how you feel about yourself. And that would be mirrored in somebody who wants to make themselves more than they are or more than they ever could be in a way which is godlike. But if you want to be a god, that's actually really cool. What you're really saying is, I'm going to take responsibility for everything about me and everything that I do. The question is, are you going to be a god at the expense of other people? Because if you're going to be a god at the expense of other people, now you're getting into a lane where you're actually lessening yourself. Because if you are a god, that means you're responsible for every single thing, every node on your blockchain, every single molecule in your universe. So by trying to stand up and say that all of these things are puny and I'm going to become immortal and all this kind of stuff, that's a cool thought experiment. But the lack of perspective on your arrogance is eating at your own soul. You're cannibalizing yourself. So why is this especially important to business people? Okay. In our modern business world. So in business, we have this belief that who we are when we put on that suit or that polo shirt or the shorts, if you work at a surf shop, as soon as we go to work, who we are as people doesn't matter. If I'm running a business, it's cutthroat, it's profit, it's cutting costs, it's labor, it's, it's putting in work, it's grinding. It's, it's that attitude of sincere selfishness. And the problem with that is many people who start businesses, entrepreneurs, they say that you know a lot of people started 22 businesses before they had a successful business. And what I see a lot of times is people have tried so hard to take advantage of people and failed and realized they actually have to do something to help somebody to get anywhere. And when they learn that lesson, however harshly, that's when they reach success. People who are just selfish and just want to do things for themselves are less successful than those who want to help others. And you can make a lot of money. You can become very successful. You could be the wealthiest person in the world. But are you happy, my friend? Are you joyful? That's true. And that leads me into another question. Happiness is valuable. I think we'd all agree on that. Health is valuable. Peace is valuable, right? Joy is valuable. Uh, whatever the opposite of fear is, you know, confidence, I guess, is, is valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, feelings of safety. These things are valuable, but that doesn't mean you could go put a number on them. But we've seen our society transform over the past centuries from a society that has marketplaces to a marketplace society. And this is only growing with the blockchain revolution. I'm reminded of just stories from ancient times where there were things that people had that they would never think of assigning a value to, right? And now we have a robust securities market. Basically, people buying predictions, right? They buy agreements and predictions on the future, you know, and there are values on all of these predictions that are assigned by the market. People in ancient times, of course, they would have thought you're tempting the gods by doing that, you know, by, by marketing, having markets where you sell predictions. Not everything was economized. Not everything was given a value. Many people worked their entire lives and only thought in terms of economic value occasionally. You know, they didn't go to markets. They didn't buy or sell. You know, their things were taken care of them by their lord, for instance, or their their you know, landholder, their, their king, whatever. 
And they held value in family. They had value in experiences. They had value in the things they made for themselves, the things that were given to them. And they didn't think of them in terms of dollars. Now we're starting more and more to think of everything in terms of dollars. Uh, Odysseus would have been offended if he were given the chance to buy some nice armor, you know, rather than being awarded it for his valor. But nowadays, it's not, you, you don't feel offended if someone offers you to buy something. It's almost like nobody cares if you acquired that thing by money or some other means, you know, that it's become okay with everything to have a value. The Industrial Revolution took that even further. People started selling their time, selling their labor. People would go on labor markets and, you know, then uh, equities opened, commodities and futures trading and everything started having a value we can pin it to. And the blockchain is even getting more that way. Compute power being, you know, assigned values. And we have, uh, we have people, you know, putting value on their DNA and value on their, their health data and on their actual health. <laughs> We're assigning value to everything. And, and I read papers of blockchains that are finding new places to take something that we just didn't give a dollar value and now there's a market for it. My main question here is, do you think this is beneficial because it makes people think in terms of value more often? Or are there things that we're losing sight of when we put a market value on everything? Are we taking these things that we can't put a dollar value on or haven't yet and starting to say those things are less valuable because they don't have a dollar value? And here's where technology and finance meet their end. And you start to get into spirituality and the unknown and all of these kinds of things, because what is sitting in, in between those two spaces, between technology, finance, and all those things, and is true personal experience. You know what being happy is to you, but you also learn what happiness is by seeing it outside of yourself. So it's, it's not economic value, but it's experiential value. I'll put it like this. What you're trying to quantify is an unlimited resource that anybody could make at any time for other people if they choose to do so. And that's what's going to be the challenge of the next society. So McDonald's and Coca-Cola, they try to sell you what, what they, they tell you is happiness. They'll show you people smiling and dancing and, and looking like crazy people, just happy about a burger or a soda. And you're like, wow, that must be happiness. But does it make you feel happy when you see it? Or does it make you feel fear that you do not have the happiness? Does it make you feel the scarcity of the happiness? And with that scarcity, you need to fill up that scarcity with a resource. I think you could write a great marketing guidebook for the modern world called like scarcity of happiness. <laughs> All marketing campaigns, advertising campaigns are basically built on that. People don't know they need this thing. We need to show them they do. <laughs> you know, that's, that's everything. Yeah. We have this root need for happiness. And all marketing has an undercurrent of we need to show people they need this. Everyone knows that. One of the basic points of sales is to show the customer has a need. But when's the last time you went to McDonald's, saw that, that burger and said, man, I need that ate it, and then afterwards said, I feel so happy right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people, some people may feel that way. They may feel that way, but is it lasting? And there's, there's absolute happiness, 
And then there's temporary happiness, isn't there? Which some people would call joy. When you shake my hand and you tell me I'm really, I'm a really nice guy, I'm really good looking, my hair looks great, that makes me feel like immediate joy. But you can't give me internal absolute happiness. Do we get these circuits crossed in our brains? I think we do. I think some people look at the ad for the PlayStation 5 or whatever, and it does give you temporary happiness, right? It's fun to play PlayStation 5. You're going to take it home. You're going to be happy. You're going to plug it in. You're going to be happy. You're going to turn it on. You're going to be happy. You're going to play games. You're going to be happy. But it's not, like you said, it's not absolute. It's not permanent happiness. But I feel like all the marketing is based on this kind of hijacking our brain's desire for permanent happiness. And especially kids feel like if I can have that, I'll be happy. Adults feel like if I can get this promotion, or if I can get this amount of money, or if I can buy that house, or if I can go on that vacation, that'll be happiness. Do we confuse absolute happiness for temporary happiness all the time? Absolutely. And marketing takes advantage of that. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you take advantage of it? We do it with love, right? When when you see a rom-com and Ryan Gosling is making out with, you know, some supermodel or something you're like wow like i wish i wish i had that I, I maybe if i see this movie it'll teach me how to find true love and i can attract that into my life by finding it but really you're just watching a movie and you just paid some money for it and that's pretty much the exchange the true nature of love is you can't get love without giving love you can't fall in love by not loving somebody it's, some people have even written that falling in love is just making a choice to fall in love with that person when you have a crush on somebody, you actually chose that person and said, I'm going to have a crush on this person. I think I have a crush on them. And then it becomes, wow, I love this person. I'm infatuated. And then it's a decision. It's a commitment to say, I am in love and will stay in love with this person to the point where you're making a commitment consistently in a marriage, right? Where you're saying, I'm going to stay with this person. I'm going to make it work. So at the very beginning of it, it felt like this spark, this magic, this marketing campaign, like everything is beautiful. The flowers are just the butterflies in my stomach, but love over a period of time and absolute love is actually a conscious decision every day to continue to work for it. Happiness is something you go after and you have to be victorious in your own life to attain it. You can't get it by sitting around and just telling yourself you're happy. You have to go and be it. What dangers you see in the projects you see of creating like dystopian futures, futures where we're not happy or where only a select few are striving for happiness and the rest are crushed, you know, whatever. What does your philosophy mean for how blockchain engineers marketers, everybody should build the blockchain future and what pitfalls they should avoid. They should build something that creates true value for other people, whether that value being making their day easier or whatever the case may be. What I'm seeing more and more in the ICO space is something I've been waiting to see in the business world forever, where people are actually building communities and networks instead of just companies. Because when you build a network, when you build a community, everybody feels responsible for what's going on. That's when the price is gonna go up on your product and what you're doing. That is when you feel the breadth of joy for being involved in something important because you're doing something that is larger than yourself. And that's one of, I think, is a primary driver for a lot of people. They wanna feel something. They wanna feel something real outside of themselves. 
And when you're working on something as an individual where you're actually helping the person next to you, that amount of pride and responsibility, that that's what gives a dog joy, right? Just, just getting the newspaper, just feeling something you're doing for somebody else will make you happy all day. You'll get that newspaper all day, every day, because they feel like they're doing something. It's an inherent thing in our nature. We want to solve problems and help each other. When you are building a product that is, or an ICO or a cryptocurrency that is just for your own gain, you can see that investors are becoming sophisticated and nuanced to that. We're getting hip to it. We can tell that you're just building this project so that you can get rich and you and your buddies can go have a champagne campaign. The people that are really going to be successful five, 10 years from now, those blockchain companies, everybody's talking about five, 10 years from now, when they can actually have this process working. The successful projects, and mark my words, will only be the ones that are benefiting every single node on the blockchain. And if you're not building a project that benefits every single person who murmurs the name of your project, then you are not really building a successful company. Profit is based on value, not the other way around. If you're actually selling a bunch of pieces of paper at Staples, guess what? Staples is fledgling as a company. They, they may or may not be doing well, but they've been in existence because people need that paper to get throughout their day. Imagine if you were building a company where everybody was making their own paper and they were all building paper for each other. So there was never a need for paper. Isn't that the dream you had as a child that we would all solve world hunger? Isn't that the, the primitive belief that you wish that you could give food to every single person and, and give water to every thirsty animal in the world when you were a child? When did that change? When did that change? It changed when you said, you know what? It's more important that I get that cash right now. Okay, but you can get all the cash in the world, but are you happy? And this is your chance in cryptocurrency where people are building frameworks for you to build dual incentives to stop feeling superior over other people and to start feeling like you're part of something bigger, which is the universe that we've all been ignoring. There's so much abundance. There's so much out there for all of us to have. There's way more than enough for everybody. There's so many clothes in the world that we burn clothes by the tons on it by the hour to get rid of the excess. There's so much food in the world. The United States wastes 40% of their food. And I know I was in operations management for large corporations in the service industry for five years. I know how much waste there is out there. There's so much abundance that we destroy the abundance to make it seem like it's scarce. That time is ending with blockchain. And I think that when you parallel the importance of each individual being able to create value, which is what a node is on a blockchain, then we're gonna to start to unlock the value of each person, at least on a financial or, or technological standpoint. And that's gonna come back and show us what we already knew, that each person has a nobility and a value that we can't see at first. Ryan Dennis has his own podcast, Corporate Crypto, every Tuesday. Thanks, Ryan, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the uh, appearance on this. Corporate to Crypto is gonna be in space. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that explains why you're taking a week off first. <laughs> we're going to the moon, so we're taking some... Uh, I don't like saying we're taking some time off. We're going to space. We're going to relax in the universe uh, for one week. But I want to bring high-quality value here at ICO Alert. And, and you did say you know earlier about the marketing at ICO Alert. I just want to drop this tidbit. The real reason ICO Alert was started was it was a free tool by Mike and Rob Finch 
for people to do their own research and invest in ICOs. Why? Because Mike and Rob were making some cash and they were doing well or whatever the case may be. They, they were enjoying the process and they shared it with other people. It is still a free resource. And that's why people love us and trust us is because we do good. Not because we're letting people buy and pay for their own ratings, but because what it was then, a cause towards doing good is still there. And it's my job to nurture that. So we're not going to be marketing or trying to yell at people, telling them what to buy or what they need. What we're going to be doing is helping other people. And that's what the true blockchain industry is about, in my opinion. That's what the Satoshi White Paper is about. Thanks for listening. This is a cross-post episode, so if you enjoyed it, go subscribe to Bitkenstein's Table on your favorite podcast platform. And please leave your measurement of my podcast to help others decide whether to take the time to listen. You could even leave a review. I'm on Twitter and Medium as Bitkenstein. And I want to hear from you, especially if you would like to join the podcast as a guest and discuss crypto philosophy. Wittgenstein's Table and the music on it are researched, written, recorded, and produced by me, Peter Kay, with production assistance from Zach Elkins, and with the exception of the original theme song by Joseph Dickinson, and music listed in the show notes. My guest, Ryan, is on Twitter and Medium at Ryan Dennis Live. Next week, we'll consider one of the oldest traditions in Western philosophy, going all the way back to Socrates, or even further, questioning everything. Next week on Wittgenstein's Table, the Crypto Philosophy Podcast.